Hi, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources, so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and then found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I say that for my Canadian friends because I know they're going to be listening in, and it's still kind of cold up there, but we were just talking the Floridians on the show about what a perfect place it is to live in Florida this time of year, and it's gorgeous, and I'm coming to you from South Florida, and my guest is coming to you from Tallahassee, and I want to introduce my dear friend, Miss Gail Dixon. Are you there, my friend? I am, Debbie. Great to be with you. I am so excited to have you here today because you are one of the guests that I actually have met in person. <laughs> and we've spent some time together in person and I just, I love listening to you. And as I said this morning, I, uh, I watched a couple of YouTube videos, so I feel like I've spent the last few hours with you and I've gotten to know you a little bit better even, which is great. Um, so welcome to Stand Up and Speak Up and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. Well, what I'd like to do initially with my guests is to go back to your childhood. And I want to know a little bit about who you were, uh, where you grew up, and your family situation when you were little. Let's go way back. So can you tell me where you're from and a little bit about your family? Yes. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes to the southwest of Chicago. And my dad worked city, took the train in, got on the train at 5.30 every morning to go into work. Uh, and I am the oldest of four children. And my mom was a first-generation American. Her parents were uh, immigrants from England. And my dad was a seventh, seventh or eighth generation uh, from Midwest farm stock. And um, my person in life was my English grandfather, who worked in a clothing store, but really was an actor at heart. And he read me. Shakespeare and Dickens and Chaucer rather than fairy tales. And that was where my love of words started, was with my grandpa. And um, he was somebody who didn't have a lot of formal education, but had a lot of wisdom. And what a great yeah. experience with grandpa. My, I have my two sisters. Uh, one 27 months younger than I am and one four years younger than I am, and then a baby brother, the cherished baby brother who's eight years younger than I am. And I have all those typical firstborn kinds of characteristics, you know. <laughs> so, Explain that for me. Well, you know, firstborns tend to um, be sometimes a little more extroverted, a little more, you know, they, they're the first ones to get parental attention, so they have that sense of being the person who sets the rules. Bossy. And, uh, 
I was trying to avoid that word. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of negative, but it's a kind of negative word, but it is very uh, descriptive. Opinionated, perhaps. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I don't see you as a bossy person. You come across to me as someone that's very thoughtful, thought-provoking, but determined and persistent. Yep. The determined and persistent are definitely on my list of qualities, for sure. Okay. When you were small and Grandpa was reading Shakespeare, did you like to read also? Oh, yeah. I would read anything, including the cereal box, the ingredients on the wrapper of something or whatever. And I, I was the kid who read under the covers with a flashlight after my lights were supposed to be out. <laughs> I've had a few like that. That's really an excellent quality, actually. It's fun. Well, it, it certainly you know, helped me have a lot of experiences that I wouldn't have had otherwise. That's one of the wonderful things about reading is that you can go places and experience or observe things that you might never encounter in the day-to-day real world. So I'm very grateful for my love of reading, for sure. That's super. Now, Gail, when you were small, I, I like to ask my, my guests at some point in their life, uh, we've all had something that's happened to us. It, I call it a defining moment. But as a child, you had something happen to you um, physically that physically hurt you. Could, you. could you tell us a little bit about that and how you've, you've worked with that over your lifetime? Sure. I, um, when I was about 18 months old, I was scalded very badly. Um, with hot water, burned mostly, mostly my legs, and was in the hospital for months and had to learn to walk again. And those things resulted in lots of physical scars. And I certainly had a lot of messages uh, about those scars. And then when I was uh, seven years old, on Thanksgiving morning, in my zeal to be the big girl and cook breakfast for my parents, I caught my pajamas on fire. Oh, dear. And received a very um, deep underarm uh, burn. I had physical reminders of things that kind of set me apart and made me different, but not in a good way. And my, my siblings and I now can laugh about uh, a picture of me in all my adolescent self-consciousness lying on the beach in Michigan with a long sleeve sweater and long pants on to cover up my scars. Now I can I, laugh at that, but yeah. you know, at, at that point that was um that was a defining situation. Well, and at that age too, you're already going through I'm not enough of the smarts, the pretties, the whatever, and to add that. And I heard you say at one point too though when you were small that your parents there were words that your parents said to you that stuck with you and it reminded me of you know how careful we need to be when we're speaking to children and grandchildren as we're in the grandparent age um, but what are the some of the things your parents said to you how did those stick with you over through over the years oh well you know I mean my my mother certainly talked about how she was afraid that no one would want me I mean, no man would want me because of the scars on my body. They also, I, both my parents were heavy smokers, and I had severe asthma and had, had some difficulties breathing. And I can remember at one point my, my mother saying to me, 
you know, don't breathe so loud. You're you're calling attention to yourself. It was that, you know, you're you're calling attention to your problems. So I um I got a message that somehow I was not earning my space and place in the world in the way that they hoped I would. It took a lot of years before I figured out and could say in my head, it wasn't me who wasn't good enough. It was my mother who didn't feel good enough and to make that distinction. And I think that's interesting that lately, I've heard from many guests actually about this generational trauma. And that's what they that's what I've heard other people call it. Things that have happened to our parents or our grandparents that may pass on to us uh consciously or subconsciously or through the words that we say and we may not know where these things are coming from, but they can be very hurtful. And Yeah. And, yeah, we and we, you know, it's amazing. We we have brains and cognitive thoughts that evolve and get ever more sophisticated, but sometimes the emotional tapes or reels we play in our heads stay at that very young age, and we replay that. And for me, you know, some of those those kinds of inner critic kinds of things, when I hear them, I even hear them in my mother's voice, Mm. in my head. I hear her tone and intonation and and all of that. And I think many of us hang on to that. And then we become we become willing to repeat the things we heard when we were too young to know the difference and discern whether they were true or not. I'm sitting here bobbing my head because I understand that. And I've The last couple of months, it's been very important to me because my mom and dad are 87 and 92 and they will be listening to the show. I love to hear their voice, their voices. I love to hear their stories, the positive. And what happened to them as children? And I'm like, did you guys ever talk to your parents about about money, about love, about any of the things that we are talking about right now? And the answer typically is no. We didn't speak about things. But... I know my grandparents and great grandparents and you know my late husband's parents I, I saw how they reacted to different things and it was definitely a reflection of generations of not necessarily abuse but just hmm, a little bit of lack of empathy or maybe we were just so we were busy we were busy in life you know working and, and providing and doing the things that we were quote unquote supposed to do. You know, all this reflection that we have been able to do in our lives is the fruit of not having to scramble for survival. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the, the relative leisure to have time and space to reflect because we're not working. 15 or 16 hours a day on the farm. We're not toiling in the factory. We're not needing to work two jobs to make ends meet, or many of us are not. And so we have time, and we also have exposure. You know, when when my mom was growing up, being the child of working-class parents, if she wanted to read a book, she had to check it out of the public library. There was no money to go and buy books. Mm-hmm. There was no 200-channel cable TV to expose her to the world. So the size of our world has grown and the space in our world has grown. And that gives us the space for reflection. And, you know, the space really to question what we've always known because we can be exposed to something that's different. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we're willing to speak up a little bit more to, to talk about these things, whereas grandparents or great-grandparents were, and I've talked to my dad about this, his father was very quiet, very smart, but rarely talked, you know, outside of mm-hmm. business. Yeah. And my husband will even say to the grandkids today, you know, they'll say, well, Grandpa, what did you do when you were little? He goes, I didn't have a life. You know, he said, I worked when I was at 11. Uh, when I was 11, I was caddying. I was doing all these. I was always working, 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 which is admirable because that's a, uh, he's got an incredible work ethic. But sometimes they say, hey, you, you need to just sit and relax and read a book. He, he's not a reader. And I said, one day as we get older, you're going to find something that you'd like to read and just you know, physically we may be, not be able to move as, as quickly as we can and there are things that you're going to want to explore in your mind that I love watching mm-hmm. the, the grandkids read. They're voracious readers and I love that. Um, and I love, I love that you, you know, you've learned those messages too, but it's been over time. And I heard, uh, I heard a podcast where some, you were talking about someone, uh, talking about yourself, and they said, what, they asked you, what do you wish you had done sooner in life? So I'm going to ask you that, Gail. What do you feel like you, you wish you had done sooner in life? A number of things. I, I certainly wish that I had sooner rather than later changed the self-talk that held me back and kept me small and kept me um, focused on gaining that external approval. I wish I had claimed my own voice and my own purpose in life sooner um, than waiting until I retired from my nine-to-five job to realize that I'd spent my life sharing other people's messages and other people's agendas and that I had one of my own. I, I wish that I had really made deep, deep spiritual connections earlier in my life, um, understood more my, um, that my gifts and talents were really gifts from the divine and seen them as sacred and used them. What's amazing and, and oh, lovely to me though, Gail, is that even though you wish these things, you are doing them. You're doing them today, and we're all living a whole lot longer than our grandparents did, you know, or their, our great-grandparents. And life has given you this marvelous time to use those gifts that you have in a way that is helping and helping. It's encouraging, and I'm not going to say helping because people say, I don't want to be helped, but it's encouraging people to become better and to live their life better. I love that your grandpa, and I heard this, your grandpa taught you that words can do two things. Let's move into that. What can words do for us, according to grandpa? <laughs> so my, my, my grandfather said words can do two things. Words can hurt or words can heal. And make sure that the words that you use in the world are words that heal. And it is amazing to me in our current cultural climate how much we sometimes have to struggle to hear those healing words around us. Um, about that, you know, statistics say that, that only about um, 30% of the words we hear on a daily basis are positive. Why do you think that is? Because I wrote down earlier, um, I, have, I have a business page on Facebook, and we just posted something about a new product. And... I had two or three people come out and, you know, that it's the scam, it's this, it's that. And I'm like, you don't know us. You don't know who we are or what our stuff is. Why is the fallback this vicious, you know, vitriol about something they don't know about? What's, what's behind that? I, I think at some point, and 
I couldn't identify that point for you, but we began collectively as a as uh, a community, a nation, a culture, Western culture, to operate from a scarcity model. And in a scarcity model, there is also a model of division. Because when resources are scarce, a temptation is to use a win or lose, us and them, either or approach. <laughs> and so when we encounter life situations, our first response in that scarcity culture is to differentiate, to compare, to set ourselves above and apart so that we come out the winner because we come from a presumption that there's a winner and a loser. And, you know, there are societies, there are segments of society where that scarcity model doesn't operate. And when you come from an abundance model, the inclination is to, rather than to separate, it's to collect connect, share, all of those things because there's always enough. And, you know, I, I, think, it's, I think it is reflexive now that folks in conversation, and I can't tell you the numbers of conversations I have with people, and before I even finish talking, People feel like they need to counter, and it's yes, but this, or here's the opposing point of view, or here's something else that's different. And how different would life be if instead of saying yes, but, we said yes, and, Mm -hmm. or we just stopped for a moment and said yes, and sat with the connection and the agreement and the affirmation. And then later, if we had a differing opinion, we offered it. Because being kind is not weak. Being agreeable is not weak. (laughs) No, in fact, sometimes it takes great strength to muster that kindness or that agreeability when the temptation might be to discount or to judge. It requires attention and intention to look for the place to be positive and affirming. And, boy, I learned this lesson at an interesting time in my life I, when I was the director of the Rape Crisis Center and Battered Women's Shelter here in Tallahassee. I did some adjunct therapy at the uh, sex offender unit at the state hospital at Chattahoochee. And so my job was to bring the survivor's perspective to the, the men in this group. And when I heard them talk, I realized that I was seeing them as the first point in the chain of negativity and violence. And so I was seeing their negative action. And, and to a person, every single one of those men talked about their perpetrating behavior as a response to some pain, fear, or trauma that they had experienced. And they saw themselves not as the first point in the chain, but as the middle of the chain. And I couldn't talk to those people if all I focused on 
was the negativity about the action that they perpetrated. Hmm. I needed to find something. If I was going to get them to be open to hearing the victim perspective, I needed to find some way in which I could connect and affirm something in them that facilitated a connection. That's a and very, it took a lot. Yeah, that's a very empathetic way of seeing things. And I, as you're talking about this, there's a lot of similarities between domestic violence and domestic abuse and what I went through with the financial, the romance scam, uh, and trying to understand the perpetrator and why they would take advantage of someone's good heart. And mm-hmm. learning, you know, learning the stories of the scammers who are criminals, just like you know, violent, you know, violent offenders, mm-hmm. um, they all have stories. They have stories of, of loss of family members or you know, no jobs. I mean, there's, there's all these myriads of stories. Um, it doesn't excuse what they did. It might explain part of why yeah. they did it. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, for many of them, someplace the old tape that's playing in their heads is this is the only thing you can be good at at mm-hmm. enough to earn a living. You can be successful at this where you might not be able to be successful at being an athlete, being an entrepreneur, being a whatever. So, you know, I, I would guess that for many of them, someplace there is an old tape playing that that urges them in the direction of that negative behavior. And as you said, that doesn't excuse that because at some point we become responsible for what we do with the old tapes. At at some point it's our job to counter the old tapes, to create new tapes in our heads, and to, to act in healthy ways for ourselves and others. So it doesn't excuse it, but it, it does explain it. it. You know, it does, um, does show us that I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be bad, bad evil, negative, and hurtful. I don't think people approach life with those intentions. That's not their story. They're looking, and I always say too that that these guys. I mean, it's a billion-dollar industry. That if they or trillion-dollar industry, if they could do for good what they're doing for bad, they'd be phenomenal. So yes, let's figure out how to turn it to good <laughs> and not hurt. Amen. Yeah, and and I love how you say that that we are not our story. Like you say, you are not your story. You are the teller of the story. So say right. someone has been hurt in, well, you work with domestic violence, but in any situation, we've all been hurt by somebody. How do we move beyond the victim part and the hurt party to being someone that has purpose again? Well, I, I think the first thing we do, and it, it sounds counterintuitive when we're wanting people to operate for good, but the first thing we do is take ownership and be selfish enough to put ourselves at the center of the story rather than than at at the second ripple. So we now say an event happened and I'm either going to keep telling the story of what happened or I'm going to create a new story about what I did after it happened. So we shift from being the acted upon to being the primary actor. And, you know, telling people to focus on themselves rather than other people sometimes sounds counterintuitive or not, you know, we, we talk about being selfish or being self-centered. 
Well, in the case of telling a new story and becoming the teller of your story, that has to happen. You know, when you have some traumatic event happen to you, you're a character in the story and it's somebody else that's narrating. When you move on in life and heal and survive and thrive, you become the narrator. You start telling your life in the first person rather than in the third person. Not he did this and then that happened, but I, I see this, feel this, hear this, know this, want this, do this. You become the, the primary actor and the narrator. And we become used to the story the way we tell it. Absolutely. I heard you say that. We become habituated to our story when we write or speak about ourselves, especially negative, negatively. When right. it's, I'm not enough, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, or I can't, I can't, I can't. You're, you physically take that on, too. Your body knows that you're living in negativity at that point. Mm-hmm. Your body believes that? every word you say. <laughs> How is that? Well, because feelings generate neurotransmitters in our bodies. And those neurotransmitters create reactions in our cells. My siblings and I talk about uh, this in a way that probably many people can understand. And with apologies to my friends who do this work, we refer to having dentist stomach. That is the feeling that you get when your stomach kind of feels like it drops and thuds in fearful anticipation. (laughs) We all had very negative experiences with a dentist when we were kids. And we know that physical fearful anticipation and and you feel it in your gut. You feel that you're going to the dentist bam, your stomach drops. And so we, you know, we refer to that. That Our bodies do that to us. You know, we, um, anybody who's been a public speaker, Debbie, you've done this. There's that, those moments where your palms get a little sweaty and you're, you know, if, if you're sitting down, maybe your knee bounces before you go on stage or the, um, your throat tightens a little and you have to remember to take a deep breath, your body is telling you that you are anxious or nervous or whatever. So we, you know, we have to pay attention to our bodies. And the good news is, in the same way that our bodies tell us we're feeling those negative feelings, if we change what we are saying aloud, to ourselves and about ourselves, we can then generate those positive neurotransmitters that make us feel happy or relaxed or joyful. Um, And I'm not telling you it works 100% of the time because that would be a fairy story. But I am telling you that it can work. Here's a positive. My father is a retired dentist, and he was the best guy in town. He was the painless dentist, and, and I actually don't mind going to the dentist because she, my dentist has become one of my good friends. And we, we laugh about our parents as dentists. So you can get over that. You can, you can go to a new dentist who's kind and pleasant and might knock you out with some nitrous or something while you're in there. Um, and, and we have we have all all my siblings and I have have found exactly those those dentists who are like your dad. <laughs> but it, you know the the experience we you know we all can relate, and that's that's kind of family code. If 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 you're feeling that that 
nervous anticipation is like, I have dentist stump, stomach, and we all know what that means. That's funny. Yeah, so just change your situations. Like you said one time, it's not important what happened to us, but how we choose to respond to what happened. So we have to yes. heal and reframe the story. And, and I love this part too. It says, chances are we don't live under a black cloud 365 days of the year. <laughs> Explain that, because I heard that. I'm like, that is so true. Well, you know, it, I think we all have those moments. And we can feel like, Ugh, this always happens to me. You know, think about, I never get the good parking spot. You know, I'm always, I'm always in the longest line at the grocery store. Well, you know, what you focus on expands. That's part of the law of attraction. That's part of just the, the reticular activating system in our brains. You know, um, energy goes where we direct our attention. And so when we keep telling ourselves that cloud is following me, you know, we anticipate the negative result, so we see the negative in whatever happens to us. If we banish our vision of the black cloud, it doesn't mean that tough things won't happen to us, but it may mean that we handle them better that the effects are, are less severe, that we're able to transcend them more quickly, that we're open to solutions or seeing and feeling differently about it. You know, so take, because it's taking a moment to step back then, to step back from it. I, I'm right. visualizing the golf course right now, right? I'm down in South Florida. And it's a hot day and you're out on the golf course and it's sunny and beautiful but hot. And that black cloud comes over and you can either be really angry because it's going to rain on you or really grateful because it's cooler now. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, you know, and it is, it's just that one of the, the beautiful things about life is that we continue to experience it moment by moment and day by day. And what we experience in this moment right now can be appreciated right now. But if it's, you know, if it's painful or if it's tough, we know and we have evidence that it will pass. And we know that the next thing will come along and the next thing will come along. And if we are willing to focus our attention as much as possible, as many times as possible, on the next best thing, the next best moment, the next right response. We build a resilience in ourselves that allows us to cope better. And that's, you know, that to me is, is where we then start, again, becoming the narrators and, and the tellers of our own story. Why do you think that we are so resistant to change? Even if we're in the middle of something horrible, sometimes we get comfortable being in a bad place. Why are we resistant to moving out of that? I think because most of us have very high needs for certainty and predictability because it gives us the illusion of being in control. Hmm. And so... Even if I'm in an awful situation, if it's the awful situation that I know 
and I have developed ways to handle and ways to cope with. Sometimes I can get comfortable sitting in that stuff because I, I'm sorry, I had something beep in at me. I need to pay attention to something. You know, we get comfortable sitting in that stuff and it's easier to sit there than to risk jumping into the next pile of stuff that might be deeper, darker, and worse. Well, that's true. And you won't know that until you do it. So right. that, that's a really good segue into jumping. We're going to jump into uh, Awakening Giants. And you and I spent a week in San Diego at Awakening Giants and did some incredible things, some scary can it changed you? I mean, it changed me too. It changed all of us in many ways. But how did saying yes to Awakening Giants, and tell us a little bit about what you knew about it before you went, how did saying yes to that change you? Oh, in, so many, in so many ways. Um, you know, you've heard me talk about some of my physical challenges and I have a lot of health challenges and before I went I knew this was supposed to be a deep transformational experience where leaders got together and also participated in a service project and that was about it and then I um, saw the itinerary and where we would be way up in the mountains above San Diego and doing a a physical ropes challenge course and long days and I thought and an amazing race all around uh, the city of San Diego and I thought I I'm not physically up to this I can't do this I you know I just don't have the capacity and I almost took myself out of the experience before I even got there and luckily, I had my good friend Trish Carr who said to me, maybe this is your opportunity to be willing to be in the game despite your limitations instead of letting your limitations take you out of the game. So there's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went and... There were a number of times along the way where I thought, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And what I had to do in that time, the big lesson for me was that I had to learn how to receive. I have spent my life being that intrepid firstborn I'm the person, I'm the caretaker, I'm the giver. I'm, you know, I was a therapist, I did all this stuff. I'm way used to my comfort on the giving end. I'm not used to receiving, and I'm definitely not used to asking. And in, that, in that particular group, though, Gail, were there any naysayers around you? Or was it just you? <laughs> <laughs> there, there were questions, but I don't think anybody was a big naysayer, for sure. Um, it was, I mean, I did have a moment when we were doing the amazing race and going all over San Diego, and one of the things we had to do was get to the top of this battleship that's there in the harbor in San Diego and it required up ramps and gangplanks and stairways and all of that. And I said, oh, my God, I can't. I can't do this. I'm just going to sit out. I wanted to let my team just go and do this. It was a race. It was a competition. I didn't want to hold people back. And one of the members on my team said, okay, well, we'll come back and get you. 
and I thought, okay, I'm going to just, you know, I'll just go back and whatever. And my good friend Catherine Hathaway, who was on the team with me, said, oh, oh no, you don't. <laughs> she muscled her way to the front of that line, asked the ticket taker, got a wheelchair, and by God, pushed me in that wheelchair up onto the deck of that battleship. Now, we had to go in an elevator rather than climbing the steps and all of that. But I would have opted out and not drawn attention to myself, not received the care, not maybe held the team back. And I would have been quite content, and I wouldn't even have necessarily felt negative about the person on my time on my team who was you know would would have been happy to leave me behind if I was going to slow them down and instead I had to learn to receive and when I when I got home from that experience I have a wonderful therapist and she said to me okay here's the lesson how do you feel when you help somebody else? How do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about the world? How do you feel about that person? When somebody asks you for help, do you think less of them? Do you judge them? And I said, well, no, I don't think less of them. I just, you know, they have something that I need and I offer it and whatever. And she said, and you feel good about yourself when you're able to be in that giving position, right? And I said, yes. And then she said, she looked at me and she said, so how dare you deprive other people in your life from feeling good about themselves by being able to help you when you need it? Where do you get off denying them that experience? I went, whoa. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it's well, a lesson. I, it was so true with you because I, I, I've seen a picture, and I'll put it up in the replay, of you sitting off by yourself, just kind of looking at everybody as they were walking away. And then the next picture I have is of you sitting on top of the battleship with the biggest smile, it didn't matter that you were in that wheelchair. You were with the girls. And yep. you did it. You did it. That was the point is you did it. And you now saw the other side of, of the traverse, basically, you know, the challenge. You saw the other side of the challenge from the top of the battleship. Yep. yep. And that was cool. That was so cool. It was. It was, it was very cool. And it was, you know, it was a... Um, a humbling experience, and in in the big ropes challenge, you know, I uh, before I had gone to the Awakening Giants experience, I would have sat out that whole challenge and said, you know, I have this, 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 this. Or I obviously can't climb this pole, walk this plank, jump over, off the top of the big pole to catch the trapeze like my friend Debbie did. <laughs> uh, I can't do that. And instead, I, I said, I'm going to participate in this experience as much as I can. I put on the harness, and I climbed up that first pole mm-hmm. until my knees wouldn't push me up anymore. And that was as much of a challenge as I could do, but I knew that I had participated as fully in that challenge as my body would allow me to participate. And what a different feeling than sitting it out. And wishing. A lot of and wishing. Or regretting. Even that one step made a difference. And I heard you talk, and this goes back to when you were a child and was, was burned as a child. You've talked about walking on hot coals since then. How did you get yourself to do that? That was with Awakening Giants, right? Or did you do, no, no, you did that at, uh, was Tony Robbins? With Tony Robbins, yeah. Oh, another one of those, oh my goodness, experiences. 
And, you know, um, certainly I did that with a lot of help. He works very hard at, at getting you into state to do that. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know until I got up to the front of that line whether I was going to be courageous enough to walk on those coals. And, you know, luckily they, for safety, they have somebody there checking checking you in to make sure that you really are in state to do it. But, again, I was at a place in my life where it was really important to me to claim the capacity I did have rather than focus on the capacity I didn't have. I had just come off spending two and a half years on oxygen, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and because of a paralyzed diaphragm and just getting back to breathing. And I, I needed to be in charge of my body and my destiny. So I, I did that experience. And, you know, it was, I mean, you know, I think, I think probably the San Diego experience um, created some more shifts and changes in me than the Tony Robbins experience. But that certainly in that moment told me that um, my view of my limitations was a view that I could change and that if I challenged the edge of the limitations, I might succeed and that you know that was a a life-changing realization that instead of defining the box I could push the edges of the box and you know there's always going to be a line past which my body will not do something but I don't have to draw that line before it's essential. I can get right up to the line and try. And if my body won't cross the line, then it won't. Well, and the other thing is you don't have to do it alone. I remember uh, I actually did the, the Tony Robbins, the walk on the fires too, but I did it with my son. And I took him as my youngest one who had been going through some things, and I figured, well, I'll just go with him and get him to do it. And, you know, maybe I'll do it, but I'll get him to do it because I think it would be really good for him. Well, it turned out that we both did it together, and I think we might have even been holding hands, and we went really quick. And I don't ever have to do that again, but I said, I did it. And, you know, I jumped right in the cold water <laughs> after the fact. But it was the, it was the mental preparation saying, I can, because I could have said, I can't, I can't do this, won't do this, um, but I can. And it was, it, for, for me, too, the, the Awakening Giants, the greatest part of Awakening Giants for me was holding onto that trapeze and having that Tinkerbell moment because yeah. I, I flew. And I, I had no idea that I, that I could do it, or that I, but I just, I just jumped. And I think that's the point of all that we're doing is sometimes we just have to jump. Not knowing that we're, we've got something that can catch us if we if, if we need to, but, uh, you know, something behind us to give us some a little bit of security. But sometimes we just have to become uncomfortable or become comfortable being uncomfortable, and yeah. that's we're we are really running out of time because I I could listen to you for so long, Gail. You have created a movement called the Heart's Voice Movement, and your whole life has been spent speaking from the heart, but how are you taking this on now? What are you doing and how can my, how can my listeners join you in the heart's movement? Well, I, I really have recognized that in each of us there is a kernel, a piece of the divine truth. 
the the thing that makes us one, the thing that makes us whole and holy, and you know, it's the thing that gives our our life meaning and purpose, and it's the truth that we're meant to tell and live into in the world. It's the voice that comes from all the things we've been talking about in terms of compassion and capability and lack of judgment. And it's not the voice that predominates in our culture and in our society, but it is the voice that if we build a critical mass of people who are committed to speaking and listening from the heart, we can begin to shift the whole tone of society. And so people can join me. I have a Facebook group, the Hearts Voice Movement group on Facebook. And people can join me there. And we share and talk about speaking and listening from the heart. And now I I encourage everybody to just make that internal commitment to hear what's in your heart, to give it voice, and then to speak it into being in the world. Tell us us a little bit about your National Voice Day. Yeah, you're going to be joining me for that day. I'm excited. On Friday, May the the 20th, we are going to hold the first ever National Claim Your Voice Day. And we'll be celebrating people who have used their voices to speak up for good in the world. And and so I have um, a number of the other Awakening Giants along with you and uh, Nancy Matthews from the One Philosophy and Sammy Blindell with the One Drop Movement. And it's it's from 12 to 3.30 Eastern Time on Friday, May the 20th. Um, people can find out about it at claimyourvoiceday.com. Pretty easy, claimyourvoiceday.com. Um, it's a, a very minimal cost for registration. Even the VIP cost is right now um, on the early bird pricing only $27. And um, the the contribution will be donated to the Peace Through Participation Foundation, which is dedicated to uh, furthering the well-being of children of every race, religion, and region of the world. Um, And my good friend Abigail Grace Garland uh, founded that foundation with her father and mother, T.R. and Ann Garland, when she was seven, she's now 13 years old, and they have done remarkable work in the world. And so I wanted to make this day about giving back and about raising voices for good. And we'll talk about on that day, how do you hear that voice in your heart and how do you give it shape and, and words so that you can take it out into the world, and then how do you use it to create impact? So. I'm really looking forward to the day. We'll have participants will have an opportunity also for interaction and discussion through that day. And we really want to celebrate people who well, use that and take power of voice for good. I'm really excited about that. So Friday, May twentieth, National Claim Your Voice Day. You're you're good at the Yabuts, right? You always talk about the Yabuts. Well folks, Yabut means ya yes, but there's no Yabut here. Join us on May 20th and be there for the National Claim Your Voice Day and hear Gail. Go to her Facebook group, uh, Hearts Voice Movement on Facebook and claimyourvoiceday.com to see what's happening on on May 20th. And Gail, the time has flown by and I thank you so much for using your heart's voice for good and you know, being there for me, being a leader, uh, helping me to move through some of the resistance I have had to change and helping me find better words to use to make, you know, make our movement a little more more uh, effective. So the power of affirmation again, 
be there, beware, <laughs> be good, you know, all those bees. Uh, thank you so much for being the woman that you are oh. and for having powerful words and telling a story that is greater than you uh, so that you can help others heal from the heart up. Thank you so much, Gail, thank for being you. my guest. And thank you for having me. I've been delighted to be here. It's always great to talk to you and to support you in getting people to stand up and speak up. Thank you so much, my friend. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfotemian products at BenfoComplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day.